When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 108. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton Clark. And uh, some of you may have noticed that we put up some new art last week. Now that you've had a chance to gaze at it and become entranced, let me tell you a little bit about the artist. Jason Deem is a designer, art director and illustrator. He mostly creates fantasy and horror art and is the resident cover artist for Grimdark magazine. You can find him online at spiralhorizonart.com or in real life in Dallas, Texas. Our thanks go to Jason for allowing us to use this amazing piece of art called Abyssal on the Triple F. And now on to this week's show. Now last week we gave you some rather grim and gritty tales with a fair amount of sword swinging and bloodletting. Just to even things out, we're offering you something a little lighter this episode, beginning with the cheeky little adventure Raiku and the Shitendoji by Ed Ahern. Ed resumed writing after 40-odd years in foreign intelligence and international sales. He has his original wife, but advises that after 48 years they are both out of warranty. Ed has had more than 90 stories and poems published so far, and two books. You can find him on Twitter and online at swampgasworks.com. Ed's story is read by Seth Williams, the avatar for a three-kilometre sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to theboojum.org. And now, Reiku and the Shi-Ten-Doji by Ed Ahern. This is a retelling of three interrelated folk tales transcribed by William Elliot Griffiths before 1887. The language is modern, but the spirit is hopefully still close to what he wrote, and in turn, what a Japanese storyteller might have related from his bamboo curtain stall and Yanagi Cho. My native-speaking Japanese friends tell me that we Anglophones have been getting the name wrong in our translations. 
Daikou uses the feminine ending of the name. They suggest using Daikou instead, being more masculine and closer to the Japanese pronunciation. I've used Daikou if beaten upon would change it back to the traditional Daikou. A long time ago, the capital of Japan was Kyoto, the city of blossoms. The Mikado and his court lived in Kyoto, a place of beautiful shrines and temples. But the capital was troubled with many thieves and murderers who snuck through the city gates at night. Even worse were the evil imps called onis with horns and long fangs and tiger skin loincloths. These onis would prowl the Kyoto streets by night. Grab people by their hair, drag them through the Rajomon Gate into the mountains, rip the meat from their bones, and eat it. The young women they did not eat, they kept as slaves. The bravest captain of Mikado City Guard was Yorimutsu of the Minimoto family, often called Daiku. The bravest of Reiku's guardsmen was Watanabe Tsuna. It was Tsuna. That Raiku ordered to guard the Rajomon Gate at night. Tsuna took his post at the red pillar of the Rajomon Gate and watched. The night was filled with heavy rain and wind, and the lacings on Tsuna's helmet and armor and sandals were soon soaked through. But wet or not, his carefully honed sword could slice through a drifting hair. Tsuma kept his watch as the great bronze bell of the temple on the hills told the hours. A single massive stroke rang the hour of the rat, midnight. Two hours later, the hour of the bull sounded, and an hour later, the hour of the tiger. The driving rain had softened, and as Tsuna became less uncomfortable, he also became more sleepy. He shook and pinched himself, and even pulled his little knife from the wooden scabbard of his short sword and pricked his leg repeatedly, but to no use. He leaned against the red pillar and fell asleep. An oni had been squatting on the cross piece on top of the gate, waiting for his chance. He slid down the pillar like a monkey, grabbed Tsuna's helmet with his talons, and began to drag him through the gate. But Tsuna was awake in an instant. He grabbed the hairy wrist of the imp with his left hand, and with his right hand, he drew his short sword and, swinging it over his head, sliced off the demon's arm. The oni howled in pain, jumped back on top of the gate, and disappeared into the clouds. Tsuna waited, clutching the severed arm in one hand and sword in the other, until dawn broke. But all was quiet. The sun began to brighten and dry the pagodas and temples and gardens of Kyoto, and the nine circles of flowered hills as well. When Daiko saw the arm. He praised Tsuna highly and rewarded him with a silken sash. But when Daikyo said, "Kiyotsukiyo, be careful, for an oni's arm can still rejoin with its owner within a week of being cut off. Lock it up and watch it night and day." So Tsuna went to the stone cutters who make images of Buddha and mortars for pounding rice and coffers for burying money. He bought a heavy stone strongbox with a grooved lid that slid out only after touching a secret spring. He had the strongbox carried to his bedchamber and put the oni's arm in it. Watsunabe Tsuna locked his house gate and all his doors 
and kept watch day and night, never letting anyone see the box who was not known to him. Six days passed quietly, and Suna began to think that the arm was already his trophy. He ordered that the box be taken from his bedchamber to his day-room. He took off his armor and put on his court robes, and twisted a fringe of rice straw as a token of victory. Late that evening there was a feeble knock at the gate outside Suna's room. "'Who's there?' he called out. The squeaky voice of his old aunt replied, "'Just me. I want to see my nephew and praise him for his bravery in cutting off the oni's arm.' Suna let her in, carefully locking the door behind her, and helped the old woman into the room. She knelt on the tatami mats, close to the strong box, and began to praise Tsuna for his skill. He felt very proud. Now, all this time the woman's right arm was covered by her embroidered wanapitsu, but she waved her left hand as she talked. His beloved aunt began to beg Tsuna to see the arm. He said no at first, but finally gave in because of his affection for her, and slid back the heavy stone lid. That's my arm, yelled the old woman, who grabbed the arm and, changing into an oni, leaped up to the ceiling and jumped out through the smoke hole on the roof. Zuna ran out of the house to shoot at her with an arrow, but she was already in the clouds, grinning horribly back at him. When Daiko heard of this, he deduced that the demons were hiding in the mountains of Oye in the province of Tango and decided to go after them. But just as he made up his mind... He fell sick, and each day grew weaker and paler. When the Oni heard of his sickness, they sent a monster to torment Daiko, an imp called Mitsumi Kozo. This imp had a double-snouted hog nose, three hideous blood-veined blue eyes, and a wide mouth full of tusks. The imp snuck into Daiku's bedchamber and began to leer horribly at him, sticking out his warded tongue and pulling the blood-veined lids of his three eyes with his hairy fingers. Daikyo laid in bed, seemingly too weak to move. The imp crept closer and closer until Daiku, with what little was left of his strength, pulled his sword out from under his bedsheets and sliced into Mitsumi Kozo's double snout. The imp howled and ran away, leaving a trail of blood drops. Tsuna and the other guards congratulated Daiko on his blow, and then immediately set out to track down and destroy the imp. They followed the blood drops a long way, until they came to a cave in the mountains. Inside the cave they could see a spider, six feet tall, with legs as long as fishing rods and as big around as Daikon radishes. The spider had two great yellow eyes like campfires and a gaping sword slash across the snout. Tsuna knew that if he tried to fight in close to the spider, they were in danger from its claws. So he tore a thick sapling out of the ground and, holding it like a lance, ran at the spider, pinning it in the sapling's roots. The other guardsmen tied up its long legs and stabbed it to death. By the time they returned to Kyoto, Daiko had recovered from his illness. From a gold brocade bag he held out a commission he had received from the Mikado. Daikyo, sonata ni oni taji o mizimuru. I command you, Daikyo, to chastise the onis. Daikyo, Tsuna, and two other trusted guardsmen disguised themselves as komuso, 
wandering priests of the mountains. They put large straw hats, shaped like washbowls, over their helmets and covered their armor with cheap peasants' clothing. Then, after worshipping at the shrines, they marched off into the pathless mountains of Tango. These mountains were desolate, for no human went into them except for an occasional woodcutter or charcoal burner. There were no bridges over the rivers and many steep crevasses to cross. But Daikyo and the three guardsmen didn't hesitate, felling trees to cross the streams and making vine ropes to lower themselves into the chasms. Finally, high up in the clouds, they came to a dense grove of trees. They found a pretty girl washing blood-spotted clothing in the stream. Why are you here? they asked. Ah, she sighed. You must go at once. Demons live here. Onis that eat the meat of man. They will eat yours as well. Look, she said, pointing at a pile of white bones. Go down the mountain faster than you came up. And then the girl burst into tears. Daikyo was touched by her sadness and beauty. How is it that you are living among these cannibal onis? he asked. She blushed and said sadly, They eat men and old women but they keep the young women here to wait on them. Daikao patted his chest where he kept the brocade bag with the imperial order. Please, show us the way up the cliff to the den, so that we may avenge your shame and cruel treatment, as well as the deaths of the loyal subjects of the Mikado. They had climbed two hundred feet when the path suddenly turned and they were in front of the castle entrance a doorway built between massive boulders and covered with vines and mosses. When they glanced backwards, far, far below and away, they could see the red pagodas, white temple gables, and castle towers of Kyoto. Without fear, they walked up to the onis guarding the gate and demanded to see the chief oni, the Shitan Dojo. The guards leered and admitted them, thinking that a future meal had just walked up to them. When they filed through the doorway, they discovered that the Oni's castle was really an immense cave with a banquet hall able to seat hundreds of people. The floor of the banquet hall was covered with sea-green mats of rice straw and the walls with hangings of fine silk. On the tatami mats were tables and silk cushions, armrests and drinking cups, everything needed for a feast. At the end of the hall, on a raised dais, Seated on cushions stuffed with swans down, leaning on a solid gold armrest, was the Shitan Doji. He was a demon of stern and horrible appearance, with bright red body that was round and fat like a grown-up baby. Two short horns poked through his soot-black hair. Standing around the Shitan Doji were a dozen young women, as pretty as any Daikyo had seen in Kyoto. Their faces did not completely conceal the misery they felt, but could not show. And other girls and young women stood next to each of the onis in the hall. These onis were seated or laying full length on cushions, waiting for their lunch and drinking sake from men's skulls. Lunch was brought in by other onis, human flesh still on its bones. The onis all began to eat, gnawing meat from bone and making a noise like the pounding of a rice mill. Daikyo knew that he needed to lower their suspicions and volunteered to dance the Kyoto dance, for which he was famous. He stepped into the center of the hall with a fan in one hand and danced so gracefully and easily that the Oni screamed with delight and clapped. 
Even the girls and women forgot their troubles and smiled at the beauty of the dance. When the dance was over and Daikyo had received the congratulations of the Shitan Doji, he took out a bottle of sake from the folds in his robe. This, he said, is the best wine in Saiki. Please, drink it with my compliments. The Shitan Doji accepted the wine and drank heavily. He addressed the other Onis in the hall. This is the best liquor I've ever tasted. You all must also drink. And each of the Onis took a full drink, also swearing that it was the best sake they had ever tasted. But Daikyo only smiled to himself, for the best herbalist in Kyoto had drugged the wine with a powerful sleeping potion. In a very few minutes, the Shitan Doji and all of his Onis were asleep, snoring like the rolling thunder of the mountains. Daikyo and his guardsmen whispered to the girls and the young women to leave the banquet hall. Then, drawing their short swords, they stepped from oni to oni, silently slitting their throats. When they had killed all of the other oni, they gathered in front of the Shitan Doji. Daikyo turned towards Kyoto, reverenced the Mikado, and drew his long sword. He swung with all possible strength and sliced completely through the Shitan Doji's neck, severing its head. The bloody head flew up into the air, gnashing its teeth and rolling its yellow eyes. The horns on its head sprouted to an impossible length. Its jaws began opening and snapping shut. The head whirled around the hall several times and then flew at Daiko's head, biting through the straw hat and into the steel helmet. But its strength was spent, and the head dropped to the floor with a thud. The guardsman examined Daiko's head, but he was unhurt. The helmet had protected him. The four men gathered and buried the bones of the victims, setting up a stone marker on the spot. Then they divided the Oni's treasure equally, set the castle on fire, and assembled the girls and young women for their return march to Kyoto. When the girls were restored to their families, many desolate homes were made joyful, and many mourning garments were put into storage. The Makado honored Daiko by making him a kuja, a court noble. And this story began to be told. Owari. The End We love a good demon hunter tale, especially one with a grand hero and a little over-the-top violence. Well done, Ed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our next story is a caper comedy of sorts. The amusing The Missable Imp by Tony Pye. Tony is a Canadian science fiction and fantasy writer whose short fiction has been thrice nominated for the Aurora Awards and was a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 2009. You can visit him online at tonypie.com. The story is read by Brian Rollins. Brian was born in California and grew up in and around the western U.S. He currently resides in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, where he works as a voice artist primarily focused on audiobooks. He's best known as the voice of the Glenn and Tyler series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. You can find him on stage in the Denver area with Magic Moments, a non-profit theatre group that brings theatre professionals together with people with special needs to create an original show every year. He can be found online at thevoicesinmyhead.com. Craig's new bottle was tall, narrow, and square, and he hated it. It was cramped inside, and the thick flint glass distorted his view of the outside world. But Myrna had been adamant. He must ride inside this bottle or not come at all. I ain't carrying a prissy vial that'll break from a sneeze, and if it's round, it'll roll around underfoot when I set you down, she said. You don't want to spill, do ye? The magic that gave Treg life came with a curse that trapped his essence inside bottles and jars. Within the confines of a glass prison, he could possess and animate any liquid it held, but he could never hold thought or shape beyond the vessel's mouth. Therefore, he needed Myrna to retrieve Old Man Reeves' notebook from its hiding place. Without notes, he'd never learn how his former master made him. If he had the formula, he might discover how to halt the strange decline of his genius. To live simple-minded was a doom worse than death to Treg, and Myrna was living proof. Let her have her small victory, Treg thought. Without his counsel, she'd still be scum in the gutters. Myrna slipped out of the shrubbery and held his bottle up so that he could see the alchemy hall. Which window, your impship? Treg pressed a liquid eye against the glass. He hadn't seen his first home since he and Apprentice Leech fled the university two years ago, and the sight of it made him uneasy. Was it remorse over what they did to Old Man Reeve, or just his potion body reacting to moonlight? Nerves aside, the ivy-covered building was still the most majestic at the University of Northwesternness. Yet, under the gibbous moon, it acquired a menacing cast. Third story, fourth window from the right. See that gargoyle above it? It inspired my shape. Old Man Reeve left his elixir of intellect on this ledge, thinking it had failed. But did I ever surprise him? He grinned. And if the new alchemist's a perfumer, as you say, she might even leave that window open to air out her lab. Myrna crinkled her nose. You sure Professor Lavender ain't ferreted out the notebook already? Quite certain, Treg said indignant. It takes three key concoctions poured in the right sequence to open the secret panel. 
No one's clever enough to figure that out, or lucky enough to stumble upon it. Reeve wouldn't have told anyone the combination either. Last he heard, the alchemist was a drooling guest at the local sanatorium, and couldn't even remember what a chamber pot was for. Water of Lethe, in the professor's midnight cordial, had robbed the man of his mind, a parting gift from Treg and Leech, to repay their harsh master. A bloody alchemy look! You should have told me! Myrna skulked across the green to the wall and hid amidst the shadow and ivy. Have we got everything we need? I understand you're nervous, Myrna, but I will walk you through the steps. You just focus on what you do best and get us there. We are a team, remember? Your skill, my brilliance. We can be rich, but only if we work together. Like how you made Leech rich, she whispered. Oh, wait, he's in a coma. Not my fault that he messed things up, Treg said. How was I to know the fool would use bear's piss where I specifically told him to use a bull's? When it comes to alchemy, be careful what you mix. I'll try to remember. What did I ever see in that fool anyways? Myrna kicked off her shoes, tucked Treg back inside her satchel, and began to climb. He envied Myrna her freedom. Humans might be blood-bottled in skin, but because of their flesh, they could do things he couldn't. Sure, he had the spells he learned from a bottled gin drifter to allow him to escape into another bottle in case of danger, but that magic relied on him being able to see his destination. Being in the satchel blinded him to the world. They shouldn't even have been back here. The three of them had a simple scheme to strike it rich, sell strength potions to prize fighters, and bet on the outcome. But Leech's bright idea to improve the draft worked almost too well. The boxer who drank the potion sneezed so hard he broke almost all his ribs before the match. When the poor man's brothers paid Leech a visit, Myrna had the foresight to grab Treg and clamber out the bedroom window. If she hadn't, Treg might have been thrown off the roof with Leech. We are in, Myrna whispered. She took him out and set him down on the ledge. I'm impressed. I didn't even hear the window creak. Treg began drinking in the moonlight with his substance. It tickled. Mia, I'm ready for the catalyst. Myrna uncorked his bottle and produced a small file. Treg opened his mouth and caught the catalyst she poured into his bottle. The liquid burned pepper hot as it mixed into his potion self, setting his substance aglow. He delighted in the dose of vigor it gave him. When his illumination lit the corner of the library, Treg was surprised by what he saw. Old Man Reeve had always kept the lab orderly, his glassware immaculate, and his alchemical supplies arranged by name and function. For all their gripes about their master's obsessive cleanliness, both Treg and Leech kept the same standards when they set up their own workshop. But the perfect order that once ruled the lab had been storm-tossed. Where once there was one cavernous hall where no student could hide from the watchful eye of the professor, Mismatched storage shelves now rose like stalagmites, creating small pockets of workspace. Hastily labeled oils, elixirs, and filters shared the shelves with bottled vapors, perfumes, and effluvia. Stacked tomes perched on top of a chair, while a moldy sandwich lay forgotten on a table crowded with alembics and crucibles. Treg could hear drips and bubblings elsewhere in the lab, likely experiments left to simmer overnight. Worse, the air reeked of strange scents, 
sour and musky and cloying. He didn't know much about perfume alchemy. That fledgling art wasn't part of his vast alchemical knowledge. He was just glad when Myrna recorked his bottle. What next, ship? You can't see it, but at the other end of the lab are two grotesques carved into the mantelpiece over the fireplace. Treg revealed. First, pour a dram of kraken ink into the right one's mouth, and a half dram of ant venom into the left. He'd give her the final key later. Myrna gave him a look of exasperation. Where do I even start? What do they look like? If the lamp had been left in the same configuration as Old Man Reeves, Treg could tell her exactly where to find them. But now that notion was moot. We'll have to try shelf by shelf, read out the labels, assuming you can decipher that wretched handwriting. How about if I just hold you up to the shelves? Myrna snapped. If I must. Treg said, wondering what he had said to irritate her. These look more like finished potions, not raw materials. Let's start at the far end of the hall. Maybe we'll get lucky. Myrna carried him deeper into the lab. The bubbling and dripping sounds grew louder, and when Treg saw the source of the noise at last, it was too late to warn Myrna. A great automaton with eyestalk lenses and brass spider-like legs reached out with a pneumatic arm to catch the thief's neck in its pincers. Though Myrna was quicker, tumbling out of the way, her grip on Treg's bottle slipped. Luckily for Treg, the impact on the stone didn't break the flint glass, and neither did he roll. But as the monstrosity moved to catch Myrna, its metal foot was poised to crush Treg's bottle. In panic. Treg painted the decanting spell on the side of the glass and targeted the first bottle he saw, trading places with the contents. Unfortunately, the smaller bottle couldn't hold all of Treg's potion and popped its stopper, spilling glowing liquid on the shelf and the floor. Treg tasted the remains of the previous contents as they mingled with his potion, gummy and pasty, glue. He did feel his imp shape sticking to the walls of the new bottle. To Treg's surprise, the contraption, as he had dubbed it, didn't crush his former prison underfoot, but only stomped on the ground beside it. However, it noticed Treg, who was still shining inside his new bottle. It plucked him off the shelf with a claw. "Mina, help me!" he cried. But the burglar was having problems of her own. As quick as she was, she couldn't outrun a cloud of gas. The contraption blasted Mina with a greenish vapor. She choked, stumbled, and fell. The claw raised Treg's bottle before an eyestalk lens, giving Treg a chance to glimpse inside the contraption's bulbous torso. He could see bubbling flasks and piping caged within, the source of the alchemical reactions he heard earlier. Was this drip drop spider programmed like a golem, or was it truly thinking? No matter. It reminded Treg that he was mind and will. And the potion body, an afterthought. He drew a variation of the decanting eye, a spirit leap spell that allowed him to tear his mind from the glow potion and piped only his force of will into the new bottle. He claimed the liquid within and shaped it into his next body. Strangely, his new body floated up against the top of the flint glass flask, and a wave of sadness overtook him. Treg realized he had taken possession of Pegasus tears. Which only fell skyward. He fought the urge to weep. Whenever he took a new potion body, he gained the power of the substance. But sometimes the magic changes mood as well. 
These Pegasus tears sent him into a deep sadness that made him want to drown his sorrows in a bottle of whiskey. The contraption was examining Myrna with a long eye-stalk lens, while its other eyes scanned its surroundings. Poor Myrna! If she was discovered here in the morning, it was prison for her. Though he knew his newfound affection for the thief was probably a side effect of the Pegasus tears, it pained him too much to leave the woman to her fate. But what could he possibly do to help her? He was just a useless imp stuck in a bottle. Yet, if he could find smelling salts or spirit of heart's horn, he might be able to rouse her. Surely he could find some in an effluvium lab like this. But he couldn't keep hopping bottles without knowing what was in them. He couldn't always read the labels. What if he ended up in water of Lethe? Thought and memory were all he had. Forgetting everything would equal death. At least he could now read some of the labels on neighboring bottles. Vessels of all shapes and sizes contained one's pick of liquids, powders, or fumes. He saw jackalope droppings, unicorn breath, ambergris, tincture of mandragora, and was that kraken ink? More jars with handwriting that he'd have to decipher. The problem wasn't finding the spirit of Hartshorn. It had to be kept close at hand in a lab where one wrong whiff could steal consciousness. In fact, a bottle of the liquid lay on the same shelf, but pushed to the back, behind the kraken ink and a file of sneezing powder. How was he going to get the spirit of Hartshorn to Myrna? Even if he did wake her, how could they bypass the blasted contraption? Treg studied the drip-drop automaton. He knew nothing about pneumatics or clockworks, but the contraption was designed to protect the lab, and it couldn't do its job unless it knew not to break bottles or upset tables. Proof, it had stepped aside to avoid crushing Treg's bottle. But was it truly reasoning or simply following the dictates of its mistress? Treg wondered if Professor Lavender had discovered the notebook and mixed another imp like him to control the contraption but he gave up that hope as a foolish dream. Those bubbling potions running through the contraption's head must be its set of rules. Treg could mess with that, but he didn't know how those alchemical reactions worked. However, if it was moving, it must have an alembic engine for its heart. That, Treg understood. The alembic engine required three fluids reacting in balance, ruby, emerald, and bronze. Wait, those weren't right. Why was his memory failing at such an inconvenient time on such a rudimentary reaction? He bashed his head against the glass. Ruby was... Phlogiston. Emerald was oil of philosophers. What was the bronze? He cursed his fading intellect and hoped he could recall it later. He drew a spirit leap sign and left his bottle, possessing the Kraken ink instead. Although the spell took him into a new bottle, he wasn't able to coalesce a body out of the liquid. He could see nothing, and it scared him. Could it be that the djinn's spells diminished him every time he cast them? Maybe it had been a mistake to assume djinn magic would work safely for him. He should never have left his original elixir. But the fear of being stuck as formless ink forever pushed Treg to keep trying. It seemed an eternity before he could shape a hand, and the rest of his potion body followed. The contraption stood over Myrna now, running drip-drop, drip-drop, like clockwork. Telosian ichor! That was the bronze liquid he had forgotten. If he could replace the ichor with tonic aura calcum, 
the orichalcum should stop the Olympic engine dead. But if things went wrong, the confounded contraption might blow up, taking Treg and Myrna with it. Treg shuddered just thinking about it. Unfortunately, he needed Myrna to find the tonic orichalcum in this mess, which meant waking her up and keeping the contraption from knocking her out again. Even getting the spirit of Hartshorn to Myrna would be a challenge. If he could break a bottle of it next to Myrna, the fumes should be enough to rouse her. He supposed he could spirit leap into the Hartshorn, trade places with the Kraken ink, then roll his brittle bottle off the shelf. But could he get out of the falling container in time? He was afraid he wasn't fast enough, unless... He regarded the bottle of Pegasus Tears again. The buoyant tears were contained in a vessel of heavy flint glass to prevent the whole thing from floating into the air. His current prison was made of more delicate glass. With the right sequence of spells, it might work. First, he spirit-leapt into the Pegasus tears. While Treg was struck by another bout of sadness, his fears thankfully subsided. He could pull this off. Treg targeted the ink bottle again, but this time he used the decanting eye and swapped the Pegasus tears with the Kraken ink. His tear-made body pushed against the top of the thin glass, levitating the entire container. The glass clinked against the roof of the shelf. The contraption heard the noise and turned an eye stalk his way. Rolling the ink bottle from the inside, Treg forced his container to the edge of the shelf's roof, then cast his decanting eye and exchanged places with the spirit of Hartshorn. With the Hartshorn unable to keep the jar afloat, it fell and bounced off the shelf. Treg's current bottle was too heavy for its tear-made body to levitate high enough for him to see, but he did hear the sound of glass smashing to bits. Myrna, if you can hear me, play dead, he shouted. I bet the contraption's too dumb to tell if you're faking sleep. The sound of his voice drew the contraption's attention. A pair of claws snatched him from the shelf. Treg had been counting on it. When the automaton brought his bottle close enough that he could see its glassy innards, he leapt spirit-wise into the reservoir of Talosian ichor. He forced his imp shape onto the viscous ichor, withholding any droplets of the new substance from leaving his new glass cage. The drip-drop rhythm stopped. The contraption sputtered and Treg felt heat rising from the pipes connecting the reservoir to the Alembic heart. The phlogiston was reacting to the oil of philosophers without the Talosian ichor acting in counterbalance, and that wasn't good. Could he perhaps stay in the contraption, regulating the drip of ichor into the Alembical reaction? It was a tempting thought. He might even be able to control the automaton and actually touch things and move but there didn't seem to be enough substance to keep the alembical heart beating. Professor Lavender must replenish the reservoirs daily. It wouldn't do to have his ichor body consumed by the process. I can't control this contraption for long, Myrna, Treg said, his words slurring from the thick nature of the ichor. I need tonic or a calcum to stop it for good. For the love of Glob, find some and hold the bottle up. Myrna stood, rubbing her eyes. What's it look like? The contraption was shaking now. Just read the damn labels, Treg shouted. What's it look like? Oh. Treg realized what Myrna was too proud to admit. You can't read. Lots of folks can't. But it don't mean they ain't smart. She grabbed a golden potion off a shelf. 
This it? Treg squinted at the label. No. The heat from the pipes was growing insufferable, and the damned contraction was rocking wildly on its legs. Show me another, quickly, before it blows. It was the wrong thing to say. Myrna backed away from the contraption. Sorry, your impship. You're on your own. She turned and sprinted for the window. Come back, you cask of ungrateful blood, he cried, but she was gone. Without Myrna, Treg had no choice but to try to find the tonic or a calcum himself, but he couldn't see anything clearly beyond the hull of the infernal contraption, much less the hue of a potion or read the labels. Maybe Myrna had the right idea. He could come back for the notebook another day. It was time to get out of here. He saw the narrow and square bottle he arrived in, which now held blue. He traced a spirit leap sign and... The contraption blew up. The force of the explosion sent tables, flasks, and books flying, just as Treg's spirit flowed through the spirit leap sign. Instead of pouring into his intended bottle, however, the blast threw a different flask in his path, forcing him to infuse the unknown liquid with his mind. The outside world went dark, and Treg lost the strength to keep his shape and thought. When he awakened, Treg imposed his shape on the liquid he now inhabited, wondering where he had ended up. Scant sunlight peeked through the chaos of twisted bronze, sundered wood, and broken glass around him. He wasn't sure what the potion was, except that it was sweet and smooth. Treg had a sudden longing to see someone, anyone, though he couldn't say exactly why. Mina, are you there? he cried. Anyone? A hand pushed through the debris, clasped around the neck of his bottle, and lifted him up. A red-haired woman in her thirties smiled at him from the other side of the glass. Professor Lavender. From the moment Treg saw Lavender, he knew she was the one who had been missing from his life. She was the taskmaster he longed for, the brilliant mind he admired. He was stuck inside a love filter, he realized, but looking at his true love, he was just fine with that. What a strange thing to find, Lavender said. What might you be? And do you know what happened to my workshop? Why, there's a tale in that fair lady, Lavender, and a gift of a notebook at the end of its telling. Treg cried with heartfelt words. But I, Tregnum, your loving servant, must first sing praise to your beauty. As Treg sang of love and devotion, he wondered if Mistress Lavender would rebuild the contraption for him. But she wouldn't need bubbling potions to control the blasted thing. Not when his brilliant mind could do wonders in their place. It's not often we find a story with a protagonist in a bottle who is neither boring nor a genie. Our thanks to Tony for such a fun and funny story. If you enjoyed it, or any of the dozens of other stories we've offered over the past two years, please consider visiting our Patreon page and making a donation. It helps keep the servers going, and every little bit gets us closer to being able to pay authors for exclusive, unpublished content. The link is on our website. Pop over and have a look. If you'd like to share your thoughts on these or any of our other stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. 
We love hearing from you, our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be fed to an orni. I'm off to go and bake a cake. Do wish me and my waistline good luck. I'll see you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.